0: Morrison's flood disaster and the crisis of small government, Putin's war and energy in the West, plus the good news is about solar panel flowers. This is the Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me as always is the brilliant best-selling author of Q and on and on, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, Guardian columnist and Australian socialist identity, Van <laughs> How are you, Van?
1: Uh, well, I'm missing you, obviously. I'm in Adelaide, and Ben and I have had the most fun technical adventure with this program, haven't we, darling?
0: We have. We have. We, we thought we probably had it down pat doing this in different parts of the country at the same time, and it looks like there's been a software upgrade somewhere along the way, and it took us good part of 40 minutes to figure out how to actually talk to each other and hear each other at the same time.
1: <laughs> well, I'm I'm really hoping that you can hear me uh, clearly because obviously at a difference with something going on with the software, it's, uh, it's a little challenging, but let's see what we can do.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we'll be fine. A huge thank you and congratulations to everybody who has been supporting the week on Wednesday over the last couple of months. February was our biggest month ever for downloads. We're now obviously almost 10 days into March. We're smashing, absolutely smashing it. So everybody who's chipped in, everybody who has jumped on the buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday, it's the message is getting out there. The work that you're putting in, the help that you're giving the podcast is paying off. So we want to give a huge shout out to everyone in that boat. And, of course, we also want to remind people to get out there and join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow is the link to join your union. Uh, and there's never been a more important time to join. Ben, there's so many things happening at the moment where working people need need power, they need strength, they need government to back them in, and, of course, we're seeing the disaster of small government playing out live before our eyes in northern New South Wales and southeast Queensland where the Morrison government's small business, uh, sorry, small government approach is smashing communities, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think it's been a real surprise for people to realise in the midst of just literally unprecedented flooding. They keep saying that this is a once in a hundred year flood and yet it, these floods seem to be happening more and more often. If only there was some kind of unifying theory about climactic change that could explain why this is happening. But I think people caught up in the floods in Queensland and northern New South Wales and of course now the just incredible torrential conditions in Sydney as well and evacuations going on in Sydney are realising the cost of the small government mantra. I, I've been talking about this a lot recently because it's become aware to me in my political conversations and my travel just how much people think that there is this sort of vast civil service that still exists to look after people. And certainly in during World War II and in the post-war years, We had vast government departments where people were employed directly by government to solve problems. I mean, we had government departments that built infrastructure and government departments that deployed people to various crises. And obviously, somebody, our friend uh, Ray Martin, not that Ray Martin, the other Ray Martin, uh, who's an ADF veteran, was talking today about the evacuation of Darwin after Cyclone Tracy in 1974. And how government departments mobilised these civilian defence forces and, uh, well, civilian emergency forces, rather, to get people out of that um, disaster zone when the cyclone flattened Darwin. It all happened really quickly. Gough Whitlam was Prime Minister, flew there immediately, all these things. Those things don't exist anymore. We've had decades of outsourcing and staff cuts to the public service and privatisation that has totally denuded the capacity of this country to respond to crises. Like the the civil service that people expect to come and help them doesn't exist in that form anymore. This has been massively ramped up under Liberal governments and there's no coincidence that the response in New South Wales where there's a Liberal Mm. state government as well as a Liberal federal government is a lot of flailing around.
0: And. Then I want to just take this opportunity too to point out to people we've recently come across a podcast called Rules to Reality, which people can check out on Twitter and we've posted some stuff on social media where uh, Simon uh, talks to people about the kind of rules that shape the neoliberal paradigm that we live in and that actually these small government uh, ideologies are in many cases the cause of the disaster and underpinning the slow response to the disaster and elongating the recovery from the disaster. And as you say, in New South Wales, I mean, there's some pretty horrific facts here. The New South Wales government only asked for 5,000 troops. They've only been allocated 1,300 as of yesterday there was less than 800 personnel on the ground in the northern part of new south wales uh, there's you know there's been no state of emergency declared in new south wales but now morrison's saying today he's going to declare a national emergency i mean it it's not just that they've destroyed and cut back the public sector it's that they're also failing to use what little government is left. I mean some of the, some of the stories here, people hiring private helicopters, uh, they've crowdfunded 20 tons of essential goods to be delivered. Uh, there's discussion here that some people have set up field hospitals. Uh, so the son of uh, uh, the very famous Australian who the eye doctor Fred Hollows. Uh, seems to have been involved in trying to set up emergency field hospitals. You know, this is people stepping into the breach, but this is not how a developed country should operate, is it?
1: No, it's not. It's not remotely how a developed country should operate. A a developed country is a place where uh, public services exist and civil servants exist and they're paid for by government in order to keep the wheels on everything. And the wheels, let's face it, have very clearly fallen off. I mean, there was some praise on uh, social media the other day for Chris Hemsworth, you know, successful a Australian film star, Chris Hemsworth, donating a million dollars to flood relief efforts. He's got property on the, on the North Coast, obviously very invested in that community. Yeah. Far be it from me to ever criticize Hemsworth. I mean, Thor. it's just not something to do. Um, yeah. And everybody is aware of my particular love of Thor movies and his performance in particular, but it shouldn't be up to individual citizens and their sense of charity or individual responsibility to help people in a crisis. That is literally what we pay taxes for. Mm -hmm. And of course, the point's been made that we have been paying taxes for flood mitigation and for disaster relief that have not been spent doing any of the work required to actually mitigate the circumstances that have made these catastrophes so serious and certainly the the effort of of rescuing communities and delivering like necessary supplies to people has it, it, we've had another abscondment by government and of course this is reminding everybody of what happened during the fires where Scott Morrison took himself on holiday on holiday to hawaii and we were all told i don't hold a hose mate And these are the most vulnerable and desperate times in entire communities' lives. I mean, people have died. The death toll is increasing and yet government seems to think that, you know, there should be a market solution, you know, and that the charity of the guy who plays Thor is an effective substitute for government action. It is extraordinary.
0: Well, it it sort of blown my mind a little bit, some of of these things, because... You know, people are saying, and and various mayors of of local government areas in the flood-affected regions have made the point, you know, nobody is looking for uh, doing a search for people. Like there are people missing, but not found. I think we've all seen photos of people out in, in, you know, their tinny boats looking for their neighbours and their family members, the stories of people getting out just as the floods sort of smashed through their homes, 50,000 people have been told to evacuate their homes in New South Wales. That, that's a huge number of people. And, and, and that point, Van, about that you raise around, you know, we have been paying taxes uh, to try and deal with disasters, both mitigate and the aftermath of them. So today, I mean, I didn't realise this, but today apparently there's a $1.4 billion fund in New South Wales um, that was there to mitigate the impact of natural disasters most of that money's apparently been given out in grants uh, doesn't seem to have had much effect by all accounts the chair of that is the same person uh, from what I'm from what I was seeing on uh, uh, on the, on the telly uh, Shane Stone who is a Liberal Party life member who's the chair of that also chairs the Commonwealth, Disaster relief fund, the $4.2 billion fund, which hasn't been spent and is racking up interest far more rapidly than any money's gone out the door. No- nothing's been built under that fund. And it would seem that it's not going to be handed out to people either. The, this guy, Shane Stone, this Liberal Party life member, has basically sort of blamed the people who live in these communities saying that they want to live among the gum trees. And, and you know, this sort of strikes at the heart of how neoliberalism fails to understand that for many people this is affordable housing where they're living. This They're living there because it's where they can afford to live. It's where they have family. It's where they can get a job. It's not a, a lifestyle choice. You know, maybe Mr Stone has his pick of our locales and has the income to do whatever he likes. But for a lot of people, their home is fairly limited choice, right?
1: Even so, like we could be talking about the the Hemsworths or extremely wealthy families yeah. who live in areas that are prone to flooding, well, governments have given development approval for these places to be built, and this is what is just enraging me. So people know that um, I came of age in beautiful Wollongong, one of my favorite places in the world. And when I was living in Wollongong as a young adult, there was this unprecedented development rush, unprecedented. And a lot, I cut my activist teeth as like a young environmentalist protesting what we saw and knew was unsafe development in places around there and uh, construction that was taking place on floodplain. We know that, you know, pro-development councils, overwhelmingly dominated by Tories, um, are responsible for this, you know, free market, laissez-faire anything goes, oh, you know, um, development restrictions are just red tape. I mean, every single election the Liberals go to is on a promise to cut red tape and have less regulation and, like, a developmental free-for-all. Like, are people, I mean, people know that, right? People know that just because a political party um, allows development on a floodplain doesn't mean that there won't be floods. Like, the political decision does not override reality. The floodplain is still a floodplain, yet we've had decades in this country of identifying what unsafe development looks like, of trying to highlight the importance of red tape in keeping people safe, and yet now developments on floodplains are, who could have guessed it, flooded the same Tory ideology that told us that there shouldn't be red tape, there shouldn't be regulation, the developers should be able to do whatever they wanted in the cause of, you know, the free market and profiteering, that the people who purchased those products that they approved are responsible, are the bad guys. And if, you know, if bad things happen to you, it's your fault. It's the most disgusting abrogation of responsibility and just, you know, literally being... stealing all the cookies and being found cuddling the cookie jar and blaming, you know, the cookies for existing is essentially what this gets down to. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, Matt Canavan literally said that the flooding of Lismore was an act of God. I mean, credit to Karl Stefanovic, he just slammed Canavan on the Today Show uh, over the idea that, oh, there'll be a review after it's all over, you know, because there is this sort of, there is a there is a duality to the to the liberal uh, red tape ideology, right? So, on the one hand, uh, any anything that is about protecting uh, working people, anything that's about balancing power relations between workers and corporations, or home buyers and developers, or any anything that's about empowering people that's bad red tape that's got to be cut. Anything that's about hiding responsibility, um, deferring a decision, uh, you know making sure that they don't have to spend any of this 4.2 billion dollars well that's that's all due process and that's that's really good stuff like there's a real you know use it to hide your sins, and cut it to benefit your mate's kind of approach to red tape when it comes to the New South Wales Liberals, whether they're Morrison or Perrottet flavoured.
1: Well, I mean, it just gets back to what do they think government is? I mean, reasonably, as people who grew up in this country in the wake of the Second World War, we have an expectation the government is there for the collective good. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to even have to explain that. The government exists to do the things you cannot manage as an individual, and that is to flood mitigate your community. That is to rescue you from a cyclone zone. It is to take collective action to prevent the impacts of climate change. All of these things that are beyond the capacity of the individual and need to be coordinated at a at a collective level to have any impact is why government exists. But that's not a value that's actually shared by the Liberal Party or the National Party, and I want people to really get their heads around it as we approach a federal election. They don't actually think there's anything wrong with the idea that communities are reliant on the charity of a Hollywood star to to support themselves. They don't think there's anything wrong with crowdsourcing funds for a helicopter or food drops because their attitude to government and everything they have done since their election in 2013 has borne this out federally and you can see it in New South Wales as well. They think of government as a mechanism where they take taxation from all of us and dispense grants to people who they like who will then campaign for them electorally and keep them in power. That's literally their attitude. I mean, I'm trying to process how all of those sports rorts were possibly justified, you know, like giving yeah. these massive community grants. More money was given for female change rooms or UD6 change rooms at a football club that didn't have an adult female team than Chris Hemsworth was able to personally give to the flood response. Like it was more than it was more than a million dollars from memory, yeah. and that pattern of sports rots and just handing out these pork barrels to various communities, the car parks, the rest of it—all of the things that we've seen the liberals do—that's genuinely what they think government is for. Yeah. The government is a process of arbit- like arbitrating the purchase of favors. Well, I think
0: people are people are genuinely angry. I mean, the reports that I'm seeing are that there are actually people in Lismore. Protesting Morrison's arrival uh, because they feel so abandoned by his government, and and people are saying quite rightly, you know, that the government hasn't done enough. Uh, Thirteen hundred promised ADF personnel. I mean, they haven't all arrived. Uh, they, you know, people needed five thousand. They haven't been given that. You know, this sort of liberal idea of you've got to be grateful for what you what we give you because it's ours to give, not yours to take. I mean, Dutton has lashed out at people on um, Sunrise, on on Insiders. He's lashed out in the media saying, you know, I won't stand for criticism of the ADF, when the reality is then... No that, one
1: know, has criticised the ADF. No,
0: we're criticising Dutton and we're criticising Morrison and we're criticising McKenzie. These are the three ministers... You know, Morrison has failed to lead. Uh, Murray Watt made the point that Scott Morrison could have declared a national emergency at any point in the last week. He instead has waited. He's leaked to the media that he intends to do it today, Wednesday, the 9th of March, and that he intends to fly to Lismore to do it. So he's leaked that out in the morning. So obviously, we're discussing it, but he doesn't declare it that really he's going to Lismore for a photo op when he could have de- made this declaration, which was apparently designed to cut red tape, funnily enough, uh, and come and done his photo op at another time. Like there's no, there's nothing about their response. You know, Dutton, we're criticising Dutton because he's continually failing to give Australia the defence capability we need. You know, you know, what are we? What are we holding back our troops for? You know, we've got people, Australians, drowning. We've got Australians dying in our own borders who desperately need help. If that's not a good reason to mobilise five thousand Australian soldiers, defence personnel, I don't know what is. And for Bridget McKenzie to sit, I mean, that audacious. Uh, t-shirt design, I think, is great. You should check that out if you if you're listening. Yeah,
1: Naudacious is a friend of ours. Uh, he makes the most wonderful t-shirts. Well, to see um, a lot of a lot of which he sells to raise money for excellent causes, and he's done one of Bridget McKenzie and My Lord, well, it is hilarious. Well,
0: Senator McKenzie sitting on a barrel holding a shotgun, going, "This is not for you," or whatever the quote is, but it's it, you know it's absolutely telling because that's how they view it. They view it as their money, and it's not. You know, we're the Commonwealth of Australia. I I do this a lot. I emphasise that we are the Commonwealth of Australia. The taxes are raised for the Commonwealth of the people of Australia, not for particular sports clubs, not for... Yeah, for
1: Bridget to hand out like party favours. I mean, it is absolutely shocking. And what a coincidence that we find Bridget Bridget McKenzie at the centre of another disaster. But like this was somebody who, whose participation in the sports rot scandal should have ended her ministerial career. And in previous eras of Australian government, it would have been seen as a, an unrecoverable uh, political catastrophe to befall an individual senator. The idea that as a minister, you would screw up that badly and act with that much impropriety would have ended you. But now Bridget McKenzie has been relocated to literally a, a responsibility over the, the logistics that govern life or death in an emergency. It is absolutely extraordinary. It speaks to the shallowness of talent in the coalition. Yeah. It speaks to the fact that, you know, factional agreements between the Liberal Party and the National Party about who gets to sit at which big table are more important than the Commonwealth of Australia. It is just absolutely outrageous. But of course, part of the problem is we're getting disaster fatigue in this country. We've had the absolutely deplorable fires and the government's just appalling response to those fires, which just shocked everybody at the time. Then we had the constant stuff ups around coronavirus and the fact that the Morrison government screwed up the vaccine schedule. The Morrison government blew windows where we, where we could have kept coronavirus out of this country. All of the opportunities we had aged to care, minimise the
0: NDIS, all those.
1: Oh, uh, and and again, aged care, the NDIS. Like these aren't little things. These are massive life and death disaster zone issues. That they are incapable, actually incapable of managing, and we are all going to wait for a disaster announcement so Scott Morrison can have another photo shoot? Do we think it might be as successful as his photo shoot with Grace Tame? I can imagine the eye-rolling of the entire city of Lismore might be enough to provoke a seismic event. It is just absolutely terrifying. You know, Ben, the line that I keep saying on social media that comes back to me all the time is an extremely old one in Australian politics. And it is put the Liberals last because that's where they put you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Look, and I I think you're right. You know, we do have a sense of disaster fatigue. You know, numbers came out just today that there are more Australians working multiple jobs than ever before. So over 865,000 Australians work multiple jobs. You know, that's, that's more people than live in Geelong and Ballarat and Bendigo and Wollongong and Newcastle combined, I think. Like, it's a huge number of people who have to work multiple jobs just to survive. And, of course, at the same time, wages have gone backwards. Prices are going up. We've, we've effectively had a kind of de facto privatisation of flood relief You know, we've now got communities where we're seeing union members, we're seeing the Electrical Trade Union members in New South Wales, I think in Queensland, going out and volunteering to get the power back on because the Morrison government's not getting this stuff done. You know, I'm all for communities taking collective action in their best interest. Of course, absolutely, we want to see that. But government has a role to play and... I, it just, Morrison doesn't seem to do anything. He's not interested in helping when we've got natural disasters. He's not interested in helping when there's a plague. He's not interested in ha- in managing the economy so that wages go up and people have secure employment. Like, even in, even in defense, frankly, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. And Greg, Greg Sheridan, who, in his own words, is not a natural enemy of the Morrison government,
1: Uh, No, Greg Sheridan, who is pretty much the definition of Australian conservatism,
0: let's be clear. He he has, and it's online, but I encourage people to have a look, this clip where he just slams the Morrison government's abandonment of our defence capability, and we're seeing that play out. You know, we can't mobilise troops to help in a flood. We can't mobilise troops to help aged care. And yet the Morrison government is spending billions on tanks we don't need, billions on nuclear submarines that won't arrive for 30 years, billions on companies that have no assets, no staff, but are Liberal Party donors, billions determining where the next nuclear-powered submarine uh, dock will be. Yes, where the
1: dock for the impossible. nuclear-powered submarines that don't exist and that have all become... Very dangerous nuclear targets before they were already built. It's, I mean, it is it is amazing. And Greg Sheridan absolutely lamped Morrison on the Andrew Bolt show, which was even more extraordinary. Sheridan just lost, like, absolutely lost his temper, and was like, "We are now defensively weak because of this the mismanagement by this government." This is at the same time, you know, we've got eastern coast of the country in a flood zone. We are part of the, the Western alliance that's trying to grapple with the reality of war in Ukraine and what that means. It is a very complex and difficult time. We've had to ask for defence personnel to be mobilised in aged care because of the ravages of coronavirus through that sector and everything else, grappling with all these different problems. And what is Dutton prioritising? Ben? What does Dutton think the number one priority for Australia's security should be? Sabre rattling against China. And somebody made, I think it was Andrew P Street, who I adore, made this point on Twitter the other day. He was like, the Morrison government has not been able to deal with fires. It has not been able to deal with coronavirus. It has not been able to deal with floods. It cannot run aged care and it's made a total hash of disability care. How can they possibly imagine they could stand up to any kind of conflict with China. What would that look like? Oh. And he's completely right. It is the most empty, race-baiting, vacuous, pre-election drivel I think I have ever heard. It really
0: is, and and Dutton really should be focused on, and frankly there needs to be more media scrutiny of some of the accusations about the company that Peter Dutton keeps because anybody who's seen the Friendly Geordies, Peter Dutton piece, knows that our defence minister has some serious questions to answer. I mean, he has appeared in a commercial for a private company, uh, the owner of which has been photographed in what can only be described as compromising situations. Uh, And frankly, there are questions that that man needs to be answering about how he spends his time as defence minister.
1: And how he spends taxpayers' money and whom he spends it upon.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's you're absolutely right. You know, the the men and women of the Australian Defence Force are some of the bravest, most capable, talented and patriotic people you will ever have the good fortune to meet. They are being led at a political level by an idiot and a numbskull. Now, you can decide which one of Morrison and Dutton is which, but the reality is that it doesn't matter how brave our defence personnel will be if their equipment is out of date, doesn't work, isn't actually even in the country.
1: Isn't appropriate for the our defence needs.
0: If in like, the event we is... have a, a conflict, to have Dutton and Morrison and others in the Liberal Party... Saber rattle the idea of a conflict with China or with anyone, frankly. You know, they, they're the ones, they're the ones who are putting our people at risk. It's, it's quite outrageous. And Van, I want to I come to Putin's war because you mentioned the situation in Ukraine and Putin's war against Ukraine is obviously still a huge, huge story and a huge issue for the world. Uh, And today we've seen some big developments around the energy. And, of course, if people have been following this, you'll already know Russia is a major exporter of oil, gas, and coal, much of it to Europe and the UK, a little bit to the US. But now... uh, you know, on top of the financial sanctions and the seizing of yachts, which we love to see. Uh,
1: oh, I love the seizing of yachts. It literally gets me out of bed in the morning. The, I just think the world cannot be so terrible if we are actually seizing the luxury yachts.
0: And well, the US is now banning all oil, gas, and coal imports from Russia. The UK is banning oil imports by the end of 2022. And the EU is proposing a plan to be totally independent from Russian fuel by 2030, and I understand that the the EU will cut Russian gas imports by two thirds this year, and reduce by more than twice that amount current Russian gas demand uh, by 2030. So this is a huge, huge step because Russia. Has effectively been banking billions. I saw a BBC report that said Russia banked about 630 billion US dollars from these exports in offshore accounts. Uh, effectively, Putin was going to use this money to fund his wars. Then, of course, we cut him off from the financial system. So that money's just sitting there. But now, you know, he needs to be able to sell oil and gas. To, to fund the oligarchs, to fund his military and, and to pay for his, uh, aggressive expansionism, doesn't he?
1: Well, there's a very dangerous game being played, as you can imagine, and it's interesting to watch the sort of discourse unfold online about, yeah, NATO should enforce a no-fly zone and it's it over Ukraine. And I've mentioned this before, like that that would be a declaration of war from the West against Russia. And given the fact that there is a nuclear threat involved, like Putin has made the point, my Guardian piece this week is about the nuclear threat and the cultural impacts of that, that Putin has said, oh, you know, I'm putting my nukes on high alert. Like we don't want a confrontation between NATO and Russia, primarily because the problem Putin has at the moment is there is growing dissatisfaction with the war, which was sold to Russians as we're going to go in and liberate those poor oppressed um, Ukrainians and bring them back to Mother Russia and the fold and they'll be greeting us in the streets like heroes. Well, that was the line that was run and, of course, news is getting back to ordinary Russians that that's not what's happening, it's a war of imperialism, Ukraine wants to stay a country and these vast Russian-speaking communities in Ukraine are are obviously fighting to stay Ukrainian, which has been a huge shock. They're not being greeted as liberators, they're literally being run out of town by people with pickle jars, tractors and anything they can get to hand and the defence of Ukraine has been nothing short of extraordinary.
0: Well... Um, just on that, Van, the, the BBC was reporting today that up to 4,000 Russian soldiers have already been killed in Ukraine.
1: And the, that's the confirmed numbers from British and American intelligence. The Ukrainians are claiming a much higher body count. Yeah. And certainly there's a lot of information that's uh, coming through various sources online, like credible sources online, saying that the Russians are taking terrible um a terrible military damage, not just in terms of deaths and injuries, but wholesale destruction of equipment. There's a piece in Newsweek which it talks about how the Americans are just watching this treasure trove of uh, of material fall into um, Ukrainian and American labs. That these sort of secret systems and encrypted communications, all of these devices that from the Russian military are literally being found on the road intact. Well, Van, I,
0: and I, of- I, saw, I saw a thread by uh, someone who uh, purported to be a, an American contractor whose job it was to move transport trucks for the American army uh, who did a long thread about why we, one of the reasons we were seeing so many not only bogged Russian trucks but Russian trucks where the tyres had shredded is that if you don't move those trucks, and it makes sense too, if you own a car, you know if you leave your car in you one place for too long, the tyres go flat, the battery goes flat, all those things. Well, with those military trucks, they have these complex systems to try and keep the tyres inflated if they come under fire and all the rest of it. And, and you know, if you don't exercise the vehicle, as he put it, uh, and then you try and put it into a combat or fast-moving military situation, essentially the tyres can explode. And so some of that, some of what we're seeing is really just the kind of endemic corruption of the Putin regime um, undermining its own capacity to even fight a war.
1: Oh, absolutely. And these problems with trucks are not inconsiderable. It means that they can't resupply their lines. The Ukrainians are certainly not voluntarily feeding the Russians who are illegally invading their country. Uh, So you have Russians who are reliant on these tank, these car um, columns, truck columns, to supply them with food and with fuel. And, of course, what's been happening, we now know that uh, Russian service personnel who've been deployed to Ukraine didn't know they were going there, were not told what the actual plan was, realised that they're meeting this unbelievably strong Ukrainian resistance and there have been reports of Russians sabotaging their trucks and literally running into the woods uh, to get away from the Ukrainians. And because they know that food is not coming, fuel is not coming, and they'll be cut off and isolated. These are some of the reports that are coming out. like it's it's been a very revelatory military experience for people who may have had a much more justified fear in the size and power of the Russian military are confronted with this sort of logistical disaster. That's not to say that the Russians are on a hiding to nothing. That's to say that they are using this appalling shelling and attacking civilian districts and we know they are doing that. We have the footage of them doing that, that civilians are being hit in this sort of constant bombardment because the ground invasion is is compromised by these really poor logistics. You know, it's that saying that the the Russians can't really win because they're not in a position to occupy the country. The Ukrainian resistance is still too strong because these people are fighting for their homeland. Their morale is incredibly high. You know, the appearances of Zelensky in his office saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with my people. You know, this incredible sort of footage that's coming out of Ukraine of these acts of resistance. Whereas the Russians are in a situation where even if they win, like even if they can overtake the country, they won't be able to hold it. They'll have a Chechnya of the, si- the, of the size of 42 million people who do not want them to be there. And the capacity to install a puppet, puppet government, it's, it's going to be exhausting no matter what happens. The implications of what's going on are not just about the military conflict and who does or does not get to occupy Ukraine. I mean, there is this, this massive element of, um, you know, what does it mean in terms of energy politics that Russia is involved in this conflict? Because obviously sanctions moved incredibly quickly when they invaded Ukraine. And this does have implications for Russia as one of the world's largest exporters of fossil fuels. And there's a lot of analysis coming out now talking about this is as much becoming an energy war as anything else because what has allowed the Russians to sort of throw their weight around in that sphere of influence is the particularly European, particularly German, dependence on Russian foreign fuel exports for energy. Well, the Germans are now going this our dependence on Russian energy is, compromises our security. Uh, the sanctions have revealed that this is how we do contain Russia and we need to wean ourselves off Russian energy products, meaning that there is going to be a record movement and investment in alternative energy sources. Now well, there has been that, some
0: just on that because yeah. I mean some of the numbers here are quite quite enormous really and and difficult for i think us to comprehend but in 2020 germany imported 42.6 billion cubic meters of gas from russia and italy the the second uh, highest importer of gas from russia imported 29.2 billion cubic meters i mean these are this is gas that's used to power industry it's to Uh, warm homes, like this is an important energy source, isn't it? It's not...
1: I mean, I've lived in Europe. It gets quite cold there.
0: Yeah, Germany in particular and northern parts of Italy as well. It's very, very
1: cold. Well, this is the thing. So Germany has had a plan of phasing out nuclear power. They've now talked about that that may not be practical at this point. But the other thing that we've learned from the conflict in Ukraine is that Every nuclear facility you have potentially becomes a nuclear weapon. So you had the Russians were shelling near the power station, which is the largest nuclear power station in Europe, which is in Ukraine, which I will not do uh, the people of Ukraine, the disrespect of trying to pronounce badly, yeah. but there was shelling, there was a fire near a reactor. Uh, the US envoy to the UN said we, the world was on the brink of a massive nuclear catastrophe. The fact is that nuclear power, and I say this also in the context of the ridiculous nuclear submarine plan of Scott Morrison that was never taken to the resolutely anti-nuclear Australian people, um, that every nuclear facility you have is a security risk. It absolutely is. But the pressure is now on, and in some ways this is the most extraordinary window for actual research, development, production, installation of renewables. And it's a coalition government that is running Germany at the moment. It's one of their big grand coalition governments. Yeah. And uh, their foreign minister, I believe it's their foreign minister, is actually conservative, and he's been saying that um that renewable energy represents energy freedom because it doesn't pose the security risk that nuclear does and it gets Germany and the rest of the world off their dependence on fossil fuel energy from states like Russia.
0: And I think it's It's so interesting to hear the conservatives in Germany going, you know, renewables are the answer, renewables are freedom. Uh, at the same time, you know, <sighs> Matt Canavan's recent appearance on Today, his background image was, you know, dig up more coal, don't fall into the trap the EU is in. Uh, Angus Taylor is out saying, you know, we need the gas-led recovery now more than ever. Let's open up the Beetaloo Basin. You know, Australian conservatives are seeing this as an opportunity to make more profit for private corporations. That's who makes the profit um from from exploiting more gas and selling more coal. Yet the conservatives in places like Germany, they're not rushing to reopen coal mines. They're they're rushing into the lab to get better, more efficient renewable energy solutions.
1: And there are massive implications around this this kind of decision making for Australia. So Angus Taylor's like, oh, we're gonna have this amazing gas-led recovery and put in all this highly expensive gas infrastructure and you, you, and create the, and make this a focal point of our economy. And it's like, do you understand what happens when Germany innovates? Do you understand what happens to world energy markets, when countries like Germany dedicate enormous amounts of research and development heft to new technologies? It means that you get stuck with the old ones that nobody wants. You know this is this has ever been the story. like the it's like, You know they that the Germans are like we're going to press ahead with supersonic electronic cars, and Australia is going now's the time to reinvent the penny farthing. (laughs) Is really the the policy framework that's going on here, and you just want to cry. Like it, it does get back to the liberal denuding of public the public service and universities and our research capacity and the CSIRO. All of things have been gouged by liberals in favour of pork barrelling. Take the taxation revenue, give it to a mate. Don't give it to the nation, don't give it to the people, don't give it to strong institutions, don't give it to the future, give it to your mates. And it's like we could be positioned as, as a country that's very far away from the conflict zone, literally one of the safest places in the world to be while Russians are firing shells at nuclear facilities. This would have been our opportunity to mobilise our research heft and our, you know, our peace and our stability and our capacity for technological leadership, which we've, which we have demonstrated throughout modern mm-hmm. history, an Australian and, capacity to innovate. Van, we could have done that, but no, but because Van, of the government we have. We're talking about coal and gas just one more time. But Van,
0: it's interesting too, though, right? Because we know that there are, you know, labor states in Victoria. Offshore wind. We had a big announcement this week about massive investment in offshore wind. And you and I have talked about the offshore wind projects off Gippsland before. Uh, I think it was called Star of the South uh, was what it used to be called. I'm not sure they're still calling it that, but that you know that project was was announced this week. That it's going ahead. It's got state government support. Like we can do these things here in this country. Really, it's just the Morrison government in the way, diverting our resources, diverting our attention, as you say, away from our commonwealth, uh, and into the pockets of mates. It's it is interesting what Putin's war will will mean. I mean, we've seen now uh, a thawing of relations. Uh, between Venezuela and the US in the last 24 hours. Uh, Yes,
1: well done, Vladimir Putin. Well done. You know,
0: we've seen the release of a number of uh, US corporate executives who'd been held there on various charges, which the US always claimed were not legitimate. Um, The US has dropped those claims and those people have been released. Uh, Venezuela is talking about ramping up its oil production We've seen the price of petrol obviously go up 11% in the U.S. We've seen the price of petrol go up here in Australia, a country where the Morrison government has determined our strategic oil reserve, as anyone who's ever listened to this show and heard me talk about, is currently Ben's being Ben's going to talk about
1: the strategic oil reserves again, everybody. Currently being He's held
0: on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. In and
1: the they're you know, not even real case. reserves. They're just an IOU oil.
0: It's, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling. I think, you know, we got, uh, to have Dutton and saber rattle about China when our strategic oil reserve is held literally on the other side of the world... And it's not physical.
1: We can't stress this enough. There are not a whole bunch of barrels with the name Australia printed on them that are held in America. It's just a promise that they'll cough up some oil if we need it, which is – in Ayn, yeah, it is
0: it's totally
1: it. unfathomable. And yet this was also the same Morrison government who, who made such a big deal uh, against Bill Shorten's promise for electric cars before the last election. When Labor was going, we are the one continent on earth that has that has all of the natural resources to make batteries and we want to step up battery efficiency, we want to be able to back up our electricity systems with batteries, we want electric cars, it was Morrison who came out and went, oh, Australians like cars with a bit of grunt, bit of grunt, yeah, yeah, that's what Australians really want, and literally publicly poo-pooed the whole idea of electric vehicles. And it's like, well, where are we now, mate? What What does that look like in terms of energy independence or defence capability?
0: I'll tell you you where we are now, Van. Where we are now is the Conservative Foreign Minister of Germany telling the world that renewable energy is freedom. And I I think that's actually a really strong point for us to take away from this. Putin's war in Ukraine will probably get bloodier. It'll probably be harder. There will be lots of cost. In terms of human life and treasure, for many countries, in Australia, we won't be, we won't be, uh, you know, immune to it. There'll be rising costs for many Australians. They're talking about wheat costs going up, so the cost of bread will go up because, of course, Ukraine produced.
1: Oh, that's all right. Scott Morrison doesn't know the price of it anyway. Boom, boom. So,
0: I think the reality here is, as we have always said on the week on Wednesday. You have to have sovereign capacity. Renewable energy is freedom. Our capacity to feed ourselves is important. Our capacity to produce what we need here is important for our own ongoing peace, prosperity, and livelihoods. And I want us to move to some good news because it's actually on the theme of renewable energy is freedom, and it's in the form of solar panels.
1: Yep. Oh, it's so good. So South Korea, which is another technology-led nation, amazing. They don't have a lot of clear land. Like South Korea is mostly mountain, very beautiful place. I have been there. I vouch for it. And so rather than uh, making you big sort of desert solar farms, which they can't do, they don't have the flat surfaces to do them, they've been building solar farms in the ocean, so floating solar farms. And what's particularly fabulous is one of their uh, administrative areas um, has built floating solar farms in the shape of plum blossoms. There are 92,000 solar panels that are part of this configuration. It's actually become like one of the modern wonders of the world and tourists go to look at the floating, shiny plum blossoms on the sea. Uh, It is absolutely extraordinary. They generate uh, 41.5 megawatts of power, which is enough to power the whole county of sixty thousand people, and it's becoming what they've done in South Korea is becoming sort of the go-to uh, form of solar energy production in Asia. It's getting bigger and bigger, and the, the currently there's a South Korean plan for a um, floating solar. System that would generate 9.4 gigawatts of electricity, which is the equivalent energy of nine nuclear reactors. So, as we've been saying, what's going on in the world? Like, the world is moving ahead and is moving ahead rapidly and has the motivation, the political, geopolitical motivation to move ahead very rapidly into the renewable energy future. You can see what the South Koreans are doing. You can see how this influences construction development in Asia. It is very obvious what the risks of nuclear power generation are more than ever. Everybody in Gen X terrified, singing a whole bunch of yeah. songs from their childhood, um, being reminded of just, you know, a constant fear of meltdowns and nuclear war and, you know, Australia has the, had should have the opportunity to participate in that, but we have a government that doesn't hold a hose, does like bringing coal into parliament, thinks that, you know, the penny farthing is the future, and I just, like, I want to be part of the world. Yeah. I want to be part of the world, want- and to be part of the world, I want people to put the Liberals last. Yeah. Uh, and you go, yeah <laughs> very simple.
0: Well, you know, it's no secret that I'll be putting, uh, I'll be voting Labor 1 uh, in the upper house and the lower house Uh, in in the state and federal elections. Don't forget, if you are listening in South Australia, you have a state election, I believe. Pre-poll opens on Monday, if it hasn't already. Uh, And don't forget to get along and vote there. There'll be a state election in Victoria at the end of the year, and, of course, we'll have a federal election at some point before, probably before the 21st of May. I just love the idea that solar panels In the shape of flowers are floating around, you know, in the bays around South Korea. You know, such a, you know, you you and I are both, I think it's fair to say, big on the uh, improvements in living standards that industrialization brings for working people. Uh, But I got to say, I think solar panel flowers will look a lot nicer than the old fashioned coal-fired power plants and some of the smelters that we've seen on bays in this country. But it's great news. It's great news that those solar panel flowers are there. The technology exists. We can do it. You know, we can make these decisions. We just need governments that want to do it. Van- Big,
1: fat, majoritarian Labor governments, big fat social democratic governments. This is literally the solution to our problems. It's the mechanism for the actual logistics of progressive social change and environmental preservation. So in case there was any ambiguity at all, I am also a vote one Labor in the lower house and upper house kind of person because I want to be part of the majoritarian project.
0: Absolutely. And of course, we encourage everybody who listens to The Week on Wednesday to join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow, because union members are. They're first in the community to do what's needed in the community. They are fighting for better wages, more secure work, equality for women. We saw yesterday the union movement right around Australia holding rallies and events Really driving home the importance, you know, International Women's Day used to be called International Working Women's Day. Um, and, and it's such a, such a core part of union values. And, and on that note, I should say to Purple too, don't forget to tune into On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, who explore these issues, who talk to workers about what it's like to be a worker in Australia in some of you know, the most difficult and often dangerous circumstances and often very low-paid circumstances as well. Van, I think we need to give a shout-out to the supporters of this show.
1: Yeah, we should. Uh, Thank you, everybody who has supported this show uh, with a financial contribution Um, we're always blown away by the support we receive. Obviously, if you make a contribution, we pump that into advertising and production and everything we can do to make show bigger, better, and more popular. And the fact that the show is gaining this marvelous audience. And I just want to say how great it's been. Like I was in Canberra the other day doing an event with Andrew Lee and signing books. And I've been in Adelaide here for Adelaide Writers Week. And people come up to me and say, I listen to your podcast. Ben and I got re- <laughs> recognized at our favorite Adelaide restaurant, East Taste, the other night, which was very exciting. But I was like, hey, Ben and Ben, you know, listen to the podcast. And just thank you, everyone. Like, we just love feeling that we're not just doing this at microphones from hotel rooms in our shed, but that we're part of a community of people who share the values that we have and that makes us feel like, yeah, we should put this in front of more people and build the strength of that community because I think I genuinely think more Australians are with us than are against us. Absolutely. And it's having the confidence to have these political conversations that builds the policy momentum to get the changes and improvements and protections for our communities that we want so i'm going to thank our cadre i'm going to do this really quickly let's see what i could do right. leona yeah. gibbons someone lee archer linda cartwright leanne shingles louise moran donna chapman i don't have twitter my name is susan myers uh kerry nash 20 billy three mccabe cara and will robinson narissa simon katagal laura lauren and ash Matthew Hadley, Narunga Man, John Sharpen, and Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as at Red White Blue Lou, Kylie Phillips, Diana Blight and Brash Daniels, and extending the ridge, and this list gets longer every week, which is very exciting. Uh, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Hon- Honan, Gail Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, brave, Sarah, and K Bo Sullivan, Elaine, and. Eliane and Andrew, Iva Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Buster, Basher, sorry, Buncombe Basher, my apology, Mr. Basher, uh, Katie Ward at The Real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Pauline Bate, Erica Pizzoli, Megan Weckett, Moira Louise Hawker, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much for your support of the work we do. It's really it's really making a difference. Thank you.
0: It's been great. And I have to say I also just I want to give a particularly special shout-out to Brash Daniels who got in touch with us this week uh, who was already a supporter of the show and having supported us almost since day one, uh, decided to... Uh, cancel his support uh, and take up the cadre supporter level. And I just wanted to give him a special shout-out because I thought that that uh, was really a a very special thing to do and we really appreciate that. And, of course, we will always keep the week on Wednesday and the weekend wrap free to download, free to listen, uh, and it is through the support of people who can and want to make a contribution that we will keep building the audience and keep making it free for everybody. Ben, that's the week on Wednesday.
1: Gosh, well, um, it's been wonderful to be here, even though I miss Ben terribly from Adelaide.